Hello and welcome to another special episode of the Consumer Podcast. I'm here with some members of the Consum Consumer Choice Center team. I'm here with Anna Arunashvili, uh, Alexander Kokotovich, Yalasowski, and David Clement, both of them you know from Consumer Choice Radio. Um, and so we'll be chatting, chatting a bit about the latest projects that we've been working on. And uh, I would say given the news and when uh, David uh, uh, talked about it uh, to me recently, uh, there seems to be some uh, confrontations going on in Canada, new stuff about, uh, well, uh, the taxi lobbies and, and Uber fighting each other and new rules incoming. So I just wanted to give, give us a bit of an update as to what's happening there in Canada. Yeah, so essentially what happened is about 18 months ago, city council said that they wanted to make a special drive uh, training program for ride-sharing drivers, and they they mandated it, but they never actually picked a vendor to provide the program. So it, it just sat idle for 18 months, and now one of the city councilors who has forever opposed ride-sharing um, has pushed a motion that actually stops the the issuing of new licenses until drivers take this safety program that doesn't exist. And so there's some real shady stuff going on uh, at Toronto City Hall. I've tweeted about this um, just recently where the lobbyist registry for the city of Toronto shows that the taxi lobby has not registered any of their meetings while also tweeting about their meetings with city councillors. So it just seems like a very nefarious relationship um, where they're they're tilting the scales in favor of taxis and really, really doing a lot of damage to the folks who like ride-sharing. And this is very similar to what we've been experiencing in Europe. Actually, I was curious, Coco, um, you, uh, you're from Serbia. You live in Belgrade. Um, when I go to Belgrade, I see that the, the standard the big sharing economy platforms are not as present. So there's no Uber. I think Bold is also not in, in, in Serbia. And I remember... Um, from like the newsletter I was subscribed to from the, the one of the companies that provide services, uh, Cargo, that they, there was there was some of a battle that they were in, like a judicial battle where there was some back and forth as to whether they could be continued to, to be allowed there. Can you tell us a bit about what the situation is in Serbia? Right. Um, great question. So um, as for, as for um, Serbia, for the first, well, since... Until 2015, there was only taxis, which were very heavily regulated. So the city would decide on the minimal and maximum price. So it's one price for all the consumers. And there's also a problem of taxi licensing. Belgrade is a city of around 1.8 to 2 million people with a limit of 5,000 taxi licenses that were issued. And um, at the same time where Uber was becoming increasingly popular and kind of in its best phase around 2014, 15, uh, there was a company that was started by an entrepreneur called Cargo, uh, which worked on a very much uh, same principle as, as Uber. You would hail a taxi through an app. Everything would be um, pretty much uh, done through this ride-sharing service. And uh, they were facing backlash primarily from the taxi drivers. So taxi drivers in those early days would um, both physically attack, but also kind of try to get cargo out of out of the market. One of the reasons for that is that they offered lower prices uh, and they offered way, way better service in those early days. So what happened was that they were going in this gray area, kind of working as a service provider 
Um, and um, somewhere around 2017, 2018, we've seen large protests by the taxi drivers, or the, some, some would say it's kind of a cartelized position that they have. Um, and um, lastly, what happened was that Cargo was trying to work with the government and kind of get an approval from, for, for what, what they were doing. Um, until 2018, 2019, that was pretty much the situation where it was sort of a great gray area for the ride-sharing apps. And then uh, at some point, Cargo was allowed to continue functioning. Uh, it currently operates uh, in three different classes and uh, has, I believe, a very significant uh, share of, of the market there. And also kind of the post-COVID situation affected very uh, affected both the taxi market and the ride-sharing uh, um, apps very well in a sense that there is a huge demand. Uh, the prices for the taxi industry have not changed since, uh, I believe, 2011 or 2012. Um, and... Um, at the moment, there's still no uh, larger ride-sharing apps coming into the country. So we have not seen Uber. Uh, we have not seen uh, Bolt or any of the bigger companies coming in, even though there's constantly rumors of something like that being um, thought about and discussed, be it through a merge and acquisition, be it through like a new app being added to the market, which I think would significantly impact and improve the, the service that we have at the moment. Now, something that the sharing economy services like Uber and Bolt uh, need uh, is uh, petrol fuel uh, to drive around. And before we all start buying Teslas, we will still need more of it. Um, what people, the prices that people see at the pump is not the actual market price. There's actually a lot of taxation on top of it. And I know, I, I know we've talked uh, on the podcast briefly uh, already about the research you've done. And I wanted to, to, to kind of give some more perspective on that. Right now, we talk a lot about the, the purchasing uh, power of consumers, inflation affecting them. Um, just like briefly remind some of the listeners about what you found and also like how this plays into the entire conversation about how affordable is mobility for consumers in Europe. Um, yes, so like we talked uh, um, during the last podcast, uh, um, there are um, a lot of taxes that motorists, motor vehicle drivers have to have to pay would be uh, registration tax, for example, their excise, sales tax, and so on. And it accounts uh, for more than 50% of the fuel price. So basically the price we see, there is excise tax, which is set minimum is set by European Union. And then we have VAT there included and uh, it, it adds up and it, it becomes really pricey for motor vehicle drivers. And uh, basically what we wanted to say that like sh showcase what kind of taxes they are faced with and the uh, mobility costs, most of the mobility costs uh, are because of the taxes, right? And uh, it's not as if was not enough. The government is now the government, European Union now wants to ban the sales of new, new motor vehicle motor vehicles from 2035. Uh, so there will be only electric cars, um, which is um, which is not a great idea because uh, we think that uh, it, they should leave up to it up to the consumers to make the final choice which type of cars to purchase. And uh, electric vehicles, they sound great, but they're not as green as it is widely believed. And um, we think that um, after some time, like it will take some time, of course, there, there's not a big market for, let's say, secondhand electric vehicles. And they're pricier than the normal motor vehicles. But 
Um, it will take some time, and um, um, recent polls do show that consumers are willing to buy electric vehicles, and the companies also are starting the big car manufacturers to um, work on electric vehicles. So we don't really need to mandate certain technology to prioritize one technology over the other because this is already happening, and um, consumers should be able to make the choice of what kind of cars they want to drive. So, Yal, um, you are regularly both in Europe and the United States, and the prices, the price differences couldn't be more stark when you are in both places. And you also drive where you live in, in Vienna. Um, the, uh, is, the, is the explanation of like, the different rates of like, how the tax and how much you pay for a liter or a gallon of petrol, is that just based on the fact that Americans just drive more? Or is there, is there, is there more behind it? Do you think there's sort of a mobility perspective, the, the difference between Europeans putting people on trains and, and, and goods on, on, on lorries and, and the Americans doing basically the opposite? Um, how do you think that that fits into the, the, the pricing of petrol? Well, I think there's just a general American hostility to taxation, uh, particularly when it comes to the consumer side. Uh, we don't have a VAT necessarily in the United States, which I think overall is a good thing. I know there are arguments on both sides as to whether that would improve things when it comes to state funding. Uh, but because essentially the country is just so big and so much of all of the supply chain relies upon trucking specifically. That's why the better measurement is always looking at the price of diesel, because diesel is how most trucks run, and essentially all of the goods that are going back and forth between the big box stores, all of the food deliveries, everything depends on those fuel prices. And we have our national fuel tax uh, that you can get at the pump. But again, this is fractions compared to any European country. And there's just been, been this general bipartisan recognition that increasing that price on fuel will harm particularly poor people who are more reliant on gasoline for everyday activities, for getting to work. You have a lot of people who commute and still commute even in the midst of lockdowns in the last two years, still had to drive a long time. It's not a, a circumstance out of the ordinary if you're traveling one hour or an hour and a half to get to work every day. So if we were to have you know, some kind of huge hike in what's happening with taxes, that would impact, obviously, the worse off. And what we also see is the United States had in many years conversations about energy and about domestic production because the United States is vast and has plenty of oil, plenty of refineries, uh, but often there were many regulations that got in the way. There were a lot of, um, whether it be bans on drilling in certain parts of the country or general export bans on things like liquid, liquid natural gas, we didn't have the ability to get it to market. And we see that in countries like Canada where there's just government roadblocks, literally, that don't allow you to export it. But in the U.S., it's such a strategic and valuable commodity and part of life. And it's the number one thing that impacts your weekly budget. If you're a family of four, if you're putting food on the table, if you're going to school to, to soccer practice and having to go to work, even if it goes up two cents, three cents, that eats into your budget. So I think people are very cost conscious on that. And I don't think many Americans would tolerate, uh, you know, a much higher taxation level, particularly on fuel. 
Now, something that, that, that goes into the question of purchasing power and, and you know, the, the money we spend and money we use is uh, uh, right now cryptocurrencies being very much uh, in the news and they have been for a while. Um, Coco, we've talked a bit about the, the regulatory part in, in some of the previous episodes, and I was curious, um, more on the practical side, I think one question a lot of people are asking about crypto right now is, well, is it uh, supposed to be a safe long-term investment and is sort of the new gold, or is it something I can use in my everyday life? Can it be both, according to you? Yeah, I mean, I, I do think that it can be both, and I think that we are already seeing both applications um, in everyday life of those who are trading or uh, are consumers or retail customers of um, of cryptocurrencies. So I, I do think that there's this is a huge um, huge space at the moment, and uh, some people would say that there's a lot of speculation, and that is not wrong. There's a lot of assets out there uh, that are. Um, being used strictly to speculate on the price that are not stable or might not even um, be be applicable. But I do think that there's a lot of a lot of very very good projects that are the underlying um, tokens of a completely new economy, the Web three as they call it. And I think it's going to be ranging from uh, some some that you can already use and pay for your flight, pay for your hotel, uh, pay for uh, McDonald's if you're living in El Salvador at the moment. But I think that there's also many of those that are uh, going to be either appreciating or depreciating in value, and that happens on a, on a daily level. So I do think that, um, that uh, going into that space is something that uh, for many people who have not encountered uh, cryptocurrencies can be very frustrating for the reason that you just don't know where to start. There's tens of, th uh, well, currently there's more than 10,000 different tokens or currencies that you could be using for various, various purposes. And um, looking at them as a same asset class is something that we can do at the moment just for the fact that it's so new. But I do think that that's something that is, there's going to be clear distinctions in terms of their utility and their value in the future. Um, so yeah, I mean, I do think that, that an average consumer that wants to get involved into the crypto space has to do a lot of their own research to see what is that, that they're actually looking for. Is, that some, is, the, is this something that they want to use for uh, saving uh, funds is this something that they want to use to speculate and uh, earn possibly bigger bigger value out of it? Is it that they want to support a certain cause or a project? Is it that they want to be there for the art or for the technology or for whatever purpose that they want to be in? And I think what what needs to happen is that um, we need to have kind of a clearer idea of how uh, how an average consumer can get involved in each of these things. I think that uh, this space has um, has be uh, is becoming more and more secure compared to the early days. Some people would still say there's a lot of Wild West elements in it, uh, but I do think that um, compared to five years ago, uh, everyone who trades is way, way, way safer um, in, in doing so than it was five, five years ago. And I think that trend is going to be continuing. I think we're going to see... Uh, crypto being institutionalized in a lot of in a lot of ways that makes it way more easier and way more attractive for both institutional actors but also retail consumers to get involved we have recently seen the first etf being approved uh, at the new york stock market and i think we're going to be seeing more of those coming which is definitely going to help both with trust uh, but also with just getting regular folks involved mm -hmm. 
Speaking of value, if you appreciate everything that you're hearing here today, you're interested in the crypto economy, check out newpodcastapps.com, get you a brand new podcast player, one that includes a Bitcoin wallet, and you can send a donation right in there while you're listening, streaming Satoshis, right to Bill and his team for putting together this great program. Consumer Choice Center is a part of this revolution. Uh, you guys can support Bill. You can learn about how cryptocurrencies work. You can learn about how these wallets work. That's podcasting 2.0. So it doesn't just have to be the Apple one or the Google one. There are other options out there. It's all about consumer choice. Yeah, that's quite impressive how you can actually do an ad off the top of your head. I, <laughs> that's, that's cool. I actually had a question for David on a more personal level. When we talk about crypto, uh, do you remember like your f the first time like you had that interaction that somebody's like, oh, have you heard of cryptocurrencies? And do you have sometimes these moments where you go like, God damn, I should have, I should have, I could have. Uh, because especially people in our space got exposed to it much earlier than I think, I think most people. Yeah, I was, uh, I was at a conference. This was years ago. It was probably maybe 2012. And uh, we were in the hotel room, a bunch of people. And uh, this guy, whom I did not know, had offered to buy a six-pack of beer off of me for, I, I don't know, maybe one Bitcoin or whatever it was at the time. And I looked at him like he was a crazy person and said, no, these are my beers. And uh, th those were the most expensive beers I've ever consumed. Now with, I don't know what Bitcoin is at today, but it's 60,000 $60, US. US, so it's about a $10,000 beer. Um, they were good, but they weren't that good. Would you, um, do you, have you had conversations in your family, for instance, where they go, can you explain cryptocurrencies to us, where you had these conversations where they try to be introduced? Is it just curiosity or is it actually also doing the next step of like, oh, how can I actually do this myself? Yeah, it was maybe two or three weeks ago, I got a phone call from my mom and she was like, okay, honey, how do I buy the Bitcoins? <laughs> And so I had to direct her uh, and explain like where she could use her card or her bank account to buy Bitcoins. And I actually think that she bought Bitcoin and what she does with them. I have no idea. I don't know if she's got paper hands or not. So we'll still we'll have to wait and see. Um, but yeah, yeah, it's when your 65 year old mother asks you, how do I buy the Bitcoins? Um, you know that people are starting to catch on. It's, uh, that was a follow-up after the I've deleted the internet. Uh, so how do I buy the Bitcoins? Um, so I think a lot of people have time to get into cryptocurrencies right now, especially in Austria, because a lot of people are not allowed to go outside anymore. Uh, and so, yeah, uh, now that you'll go back to Vienna, is, it, is this like a genuine full lockdown again? Are people not allowed to do most things? Are you just going to be home all day? Well, yes, uh, I will obviously be home. I'll be working on consumer choice from uh, sunrise to sunset. Uh, but this is the, the first large lockdown that we've seen again, particularly in Europe and really throughout the world, after the small test of a lockdown only for the unvaccinated. And what is interesting about the Austrian situation is that our previous chancellor, Sebastian Kurz, had said very publicly and had been the policy of the government that for the vaccinated, the pandemic is over. And by this change, by this lockdown, which started on Monday, we're now probably at day four by the time this comes out, they've broken that promise. Um, of course, this 
relates to the number of cases and the number of hospitalizations. But yes, it means that all stores are closed. So if you're a private business, you have to shutter. Um, pharmacies still allowed to be open. You're still allowed to go to the grocery store. You're still allowed technically to go to work if you're needed on site, though they do highly recommend that you don't do so. And what makes this a bit different is, again, when you have 70% of the population who's vaccinated, we all in society are having to suffer. And again, some people will suffer, others will thrive. I think any of us in this room are in a situation where we can do our work from home and we're fine. But those who actually have retail jobs or have jobs in which they have customers or they have shops, they're not going to have an income for several weeks. And until the government comes up with another rescue package upon another rescue package, uh, we know what the World Health Organization declared in May of this year, or last year even, is that the lockdowns, the only thing they're good for is making poor people poorer. And that's what we're seeing, and particularly when we're talking about 30% of the population in a certain thing, it really boggles the mind that we have not yet come up with a better way to isolate this, to concentrate any of these lockdown measures and really find a way to hold of it. I think what the German health minister said in that by the end of winter, everybody will be vaccinated, recovered or dead is probably true. And we just have to live with it. But for those of us who want to remain productive and want to feed our families and continue to live our lives, we have to get back to something. Maybe it's not normal, but it's got to be a, a hell of a lot better than right now. Anna, you're from uh, Georgia, the republic, not the state. Um, and I know that Georgia, Georgia initially was very strict. Uh, this is at the beginning uh, of the pandemic, very strict with people traveling in, with also even citizens coming back to the country, um, was heavily controlled. And then it seemed that in the meantime, it became quite relaxed. Can you explain a bit what the situa situation is in, in Georgia right now? How are rules policed and, and what rules actually exist? Um, yeah, sure. So in the beginning, during the first lockdown, we were not even supposed to allow to, let's say, leave the capital city or go to capital city. Like I was in my hometown and I need to uh, go see the doctor in the uh, in Tbilisi and I had to have a special note to be able to enter the city. So it was really weird. It was those were some crazy times. And then we had another lockdown um, um, uh, winter from November, which lasted till like May, and we still had curfew where we had to be home at 10. Um, and after that, the summer was more or less relaxed. Um, restaurants or bars were still closing quite early. They were working till 12, and at some point um, they started working only till 10. Uh, but uh, even though the vaccination um, number of vaccinated people is still quite low, I would say it's around 30%. We do have vaccines available, but people are not willing to get vaccinated because maybe because of the lack of um, government pr uh, promoting why is it so good, like how is going to save your lives. I don't know exactly. But uh, right at the, mo at, uh, at the time, so there were, uh, there's no, no difference if you're vaccinated or not. But I think from December 1st, uh, you can no longer go to um, a bar or a restaurant unless you're vaccinated. So you will have to show your sanitary pass to enter. But it took uh, the government a long time to actually decide on this uh, new regulation. A lot of people were arguing in favor of it, but a lot of people are, of course, really 
mad about it because they're not planning to get vaccinated. Well, talking about being mad about lockdowns, I know that in Serbia, when they tried to, when the government tried to close down what the clubs, you burned down almost half the city. Can you? I, I know that you were also like very close to the protest. You could you could witness some of that. Can you just uh, remind the listeners how how that went and how Serbia has developed in those policies since? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, um, I think in the in the early days of COVID, Serbia had one of the most restrictive measures for the first couple of months. So it started around mid-March and then until uh, early May, we've had very, very strict lockdown rules, curfews and, uh, after 5 p.m. And uh, people over 65 were actually not allowed to be on the street except between 3 and 6 a.m., which was a kind of an interesting thing. You would see... Um, pensioners like lining up in front of the stores at 3 a.m. just because that was the only time that they could buy buy stuff and then since may um the situation has been relaxed quite a lot for the first um two or three months the number of cases went down initially and then around july early july uh, the government announced that they are thinking about introducing another uh, curfew and that is immediately people have been organizing online on the like in the same hour basically, um, from what everyone thought was going to be a small protest. Uh, in the end, it turned up that it was uh, four days of protests across the whole country, even in places where you would not usually expect them. Small towns and small cities, where um, if if people go, go out to protest there, that means they're very very much pissed off. So at that point, um, the government decided that there's not going to be any curfew. Uh, after that, we did not have severe restrictions. You still have some uh, mask mandates in terms of entering shops and small retail objects. Uh, but until um, January, when we started the vaccine drive, there was not... Uh, any particular measures. And throughout the year, I would say that even though some of the, the, the numbers in terms of infections and um, cases have been have been going strong for the last two or three months, um, the, the results and the policies have not changed much. Uh, we had a COVID pass introduced for bars, clubs, and restaurants, which are all open after 10 p.m. and now it's 8 p.m. So in order to enter a club, uh, you would have to have a, a either a vaccination uh, confirmation or a confirmation that you were uh, that you had COVID in the past six months um, except that all of the businesses are allowed to stay open um, there's not really severe restrictions on public gatherings and um, the vaccination drive has been going moderately well so we have around 50 to 55 percent of people vaccinated I, I do think that uh, that um, there's definitely some strain on the on the hospital uh, on the health systems in the country, but I do think that the the way that uh, the Serbian uh, Serbian government has handled this this pandemic has allowed for a little bit of a better relationship with small and medium businesses than in many other places that I've been hearing about here. Um, and I do hope that that's, that's going to be something that's going to be continuing. So I, I do hope that we're not going to be entering any curfews or lockdowns uh, in the foreseeable future. So now we're getting to the end. I had one more thing I wanted to ask each and every one, and that is Christmas wishes. Very short ones. Uh, they can be policy related. They can be, I don't know, whatever you want. And we'll start with David and then do that round. Uh, mine 
would be that now that the German government has announced that it seeks to legalize cannabis, the Luxembourg government will reconsider and do it. Uh, because one of the one of the excuses was that our neighboring countries, oh well, if they uh, if they don't have legal cannabis, then we can't do it either. Well, now that argument is gone. So I hope the Luxembourgish government will will reconsider and legalize cannabis. David, what's your Christmas wish? Ooh, mine is a very niche one. Um, I would like the federal government in Canada to get rid of the excise tax on non-alcoholic beer. Not not many people know that it exists, but there's actually a sin tax on non-alcoholic beer. So I'd love to see them get rid of that. Yeah. I have one that's uh, related to Alexander's topic of uh, cryptocurrencies. Uh, the government of Austria is currently looking at some of the most punitive taxes that we've ever seen on crypto and holdings and is pretty much due to shift all Austrian users of crypto products off of the continent. So uh, for Christmas, uh, I sure hope that uh, St. Nick uh, can convince those regulators otherwise, uh, because this is a great innovative sector, a great beautiful time for these projects to develop. And if all of this leaves Austria, if all of those uh, great projects, entrepreneurs, people who have these coins or tokens, if they leave Austria, uh, that's not looking good for the future. Alexander? Um, we have seen El Salvador becoming the first country to introduce Bitcoin as a legal tender. And I do think that there's opportunity for us to see more of that in the next year. So I do hope that maybe not for Christmas, but right after that, at least another, another, um, another country would uh, go and follow that path. I think that is something that, uh, that would allow this, this um, industry to flourish and uh, allow many more people to take chance at uh with with this opportunity and uh if that doesn't happen uh, i'll be happy with your thing so cannabis being legalized in luxembourg germany or elsewhere uh well my wish is simple all i want for christmas is the pandemic to end i'm looking forward to getting everything getting back to normal and having no more lockdowns no more vaccine mandates nothing nothing i don't want to hear about covid so in, in 2022 <laughs> All right, well, thank you so much, everyone. That was Anna Arunashvili, Alexander Kokotovic, Jalasowski, and David Clement. Thank you so much for listening to this special episode of the Consumer Podcast. My name is Bill Wirtz, and uh, see you Thursday. You have to learn to pace yourself. Pressure. You're just like everybody else. Pressure. You won't.